0: Continuing through the book of Nehemiah, and um, I have found that this has been such a providentially timed uh, sermon series that we're going through as as a church. It, it feels like God has orchestrated the timing of the sermon series, along with where we are in the season that we are in as a church. I was I was telling um, maybe I already told the story. I can't remember where I told it, but maybe you heard it last week. I can't remember. So. You're going to hear it again if you did. Um, but I was telling some, some of the staff, you know, they said, hey, how are things going in Chino and blah, blah, blah. And I said, it feels like we've baked a pie. And, you know, when you, when you bake a pie, a fruit pie, it, it comes out of the oven usually kind of watery, a little, like a lot of juicy. And, and, and it takes a while for the starch inside the pie to kind of congeal, right? And as you let the pie set, it starts like, okay, now I can cut it without it going all over the place. It, It sets itself up. And I was telling the guys, it feels like us as a church that we're starting to congeal, um, the things that I've been saying for two years a thousand times, people are like saying it for the first time, right? And you're like, yes, you're getting it. We want to make a of Jesus. And they're like, I think I've heard that somewhere before. you know. And you're like, yes, you're getting it. And I, I feel a call to serve. Yes, yes, you're getting it. And so I, I just feel like this, this, cha- this uh, book that we're going through, uh, it, it's just God's hand is all over it. You know, we, we, we talked about in the first week how nehemiah hears the report about the walls and the gates being burned and the stones are laying everywhere and there's rubble and ezra before him had rebuilt a temple and in nehemiah's mind he would have thought okay they built the temple now everything's just going swimmingly everything's happening uh, but his brother comes back to him hananiah and says hey bro it's not what you think the the the, the walls are in disarray the, the the gates are burned with fire and we are defenseless, and, and, and people are, are making fun of us. And Nehemiah hears this report, and he becomes really heavy, and, and he, he prays. And then what does he do after he prays? He prays. And then what does he do after he prays? He prays some more. And then after he prays, he fasts. And then he continues to fast, and he, he continues to fast, and then after he fasts, he prays. And then after he prays, he fasts. And you see this where he is crying out to God before he does anything as far as physically go to rebuild the wall, he prays. And And we looked at how Nehemiah had prayed for 120 days before he actually built, they go to build the wall, which only took 52 days. And so we said, man, there's, there's such an emphasis, there's such an importance of a foundation of prayer. If we're going to be the people who God's called us to be, if we're going to rebuild the walls that God has called us to rebuild here in this church, it needs to be based on a foundation of prayer. And then Mike got up and, and he encouraged us in the face of opposition, in the face of jeering, in the face of circumstances coming against you, what do we do? We stand strong, we continue to worship, we continue to believe and hope in who our God is. And Nehemiah leads the people through this opposition that starts to poke its head out as it starts to make threats right And then we talked about how we were all in this together. We read in chapter 3 about so-and-so, all these names that I butchered and could not pronounce, remember that? And this person stood next to this person, and this person next to them stood next to them, and as they built, this person next to them built, and with one hand they held a sword, and with the other hand they had a shovel, and there were guards on the walls, and they said, hey listen, if the enemy's trying to come in, blow your trumpet, blow your trumpet, don't stand alone, we're all in this together. And whether you're a perfumer, whether you're a jeweler, whether you're a noble who should be on a pedestal, whether you're just the common man, it doesn't matter. Right now, we are all equal. We are all standing shoulder to shoulder. We are all in this together, and God has called us to rebuild this wall. And we talked about what the walls are, right? The walls are our protection. The walls are our our doctrine, what we believe about who God is and our theology. The walls are culture, who we are as a people, and how it differentiates us from the world. The world believes this, but we believe the truth of who God is. The walls are are, are, our scripture that we stand firm on, and we continue to hold these walls strong. But also, then we said that our gates or where we go in and out when we, when we leave the walls, we go into the city and we're people who are both gathered together on a Sunday morning or in our life groups or when we barbecue, when we get together at a yellow park and watch the fireworks, we're people who are gathered, gathered but then we're also people who go out of the gates and we're people who are scattered. We're a people who are called to this city. We're a people, Southlands, Chino, is put specifically here on this physical piece of property because God has called us to work all together to go out of the gates when we walk out the gates of these the city to say, Where can I show the love of Jesus? Where can I show the culture that I carry in my heart about us being one people? Where can I show this when I go to the grocery store, when I stand in line uh, waiting for my kids uh, to get picked up, when I go to work and I stand around the water cooler, when I have these conversations, whatever it is, this is who God's called us and me to be as a people who go in and out of the gates. And then last week we talked about the opposition that comes. We're all when we think everything's going well, right? We, we're standing firm. We're, we built half the wall. And I think that's kind of where we are right now as a church. We, we're looking at half the wall, and we're saying, okay, we, we got half the wall up. It's starting to resemble something. But then our eyes kind of look down, and we look at the rest of the rubble, and we're like, oh, my gosh, there is so much more to rebuild And in Nehemiah, it gives us the encouragement to get our eyes off of the rubble and to what? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, who will fight for us. Remember what we're fighting for. We're fighting for our brothers. We're fighting for our sisters. We're fighting for our homes. We're fighting for the call that God has given us. And we're not doing this alone. We're not doing this as individuals. We're doing this as a people together. And yes, the enemy is going to tell us lies. The enemy is going to whisper to us and say, who do you think you are, you small little group of people? Who do you, you really think that you're going to make a difference in this city? You really And remember uh, the the little evil minion? He said, yes. Even if a fox gets on the wall, it'll fall down. That's my interpretation of it, right? And we hear these, and and we say, God, you called us to hear, but then the enemy says, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? And we listen to the voice of the enemy, but we are called to stand strong, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but in a community linked arm in arm, with one heart, one purpose, one vision, in the truth, standing in the truth that our Lord is great and awesome. So now we get to Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bible, I'm going to be reading uh, out of a different version. Usually we read from the English Standard Version. Um, I don't know why that's more holy for some reason, but this morning we're going to read from the NLT, which is The New Living Translation. And um, I just, as I was reading through it this week, I felt like, man, this is a little bit, it just kind of helps us get a little bit better handles on it. So if you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to read the first five verses. And this is what the word of the Lord says. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families. It sounds like our family. Jeez. The Monahans have such a large family. We, we need, this is like, we need more food to survive. I think that sometimes I'm like, do the kids really need to eat again? You just ate, especially Sammy. I'm like, but you just had a whole bowl of cereal. You're still hungry. Get a job. I'm just kidding. Verse 2, they were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we've mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live we have already sold some of our daughters It's heartbreaking Ugh. and we are helpless to do anything about it for our fields and our vineyards are already mortgaged to others so here we have like these three situations we have one a family who is in need And they're not just like, you know, I really, you know, my kids will often come up to us. Marianne and I are just finally like, we're sitting on the couch relaxing, and then someone will come up. Dad, I need, and it's not a need, okay? It's always a first world problem, okay? Dad, I really need to get my eyebrows done. Or I really need this shirt, right? And they use the word need, and I'm like, Okay, I'm gonna be the typical dad and talk about need versus you know want and desire. And so these guys here when they use the word need though, they're not like we really need, you know, an extra TV because when everyone's in this room, I don't get to watch what I want to watch and we really need another one. No, you don't need you don't need a TV period, all right? You don't need a TV. Come on, Come on somebody <laughs> tell the truth, Pastor. Um <laughs> But this isn't that kind of situation. These people are in desperate need because they can't feed themselves. And then you have a second group of people who are a little bit more needy and I don't mean needy in like the way we think, oh, that person's so needy. In the sense that they have a deep need is the fact that not only do they need money to feed themselves, but they've, or they're, they're, they're having to mortgage their way of work. So this is how it worked usually for common people in this sense. A lot of them were farmers. A lot of them would work fields or shepherds or whatever. And that was the way that they made money. And so in order, it'd be like your house. You, if you own a home, you're saying, hey, we are desperate right now. What can we do? Well, let's, let's pull a second out on our house because I don't know what we're going to do. And it wasn't because they made poor choices like, oh, we, we got in a bunch of debt. We did all this. So no, it was the fact that if we don't have food, our family is going to starve. And the only way that we can get through this is to put a mortgage again on our fields. And so someone will lend us money. But the problem was that the moment they did it, the interest on that mortgage was so high, they couldn't repay it. And then you have these third group of people, who, they said, listen, we, we've already gone through the need, with the necessity. Some people, yes, have given us some grain and we've been able to eat, but we can't even make ends with that. And so we've mortgaged our fields, we've mortgaged our, our goats and our sheep. We've done all of that already. But now because we, we owe everybody everything and the interest on it is so high, there's no way to get out of this other than the only last thing to do is that we can think of is to sell our kids. And maybe if we sell our, if we sell our kids, they'll have someone who can take care of them. And then we'll be able to, you know, provide for the rest of the kids that we have. That is a desperate situation. Let me push pause on that. I have a couple friends and family members who we're close with who have autoimmune diseases. If you don't know what an autoimmune disease is, an autoimmune disease is when your body somehow, so the doctors can't totally figure out why this happens, but your body begins to treat itself like the enemy. Your body, the, the, the cells inside your body begin to attack healthy cells and cause problems. They, and what they do is the, your, your body, if you were to take it under a microscope, there's cells in there that are like little army men, right? And what they do is they, they go out and they seek the foreign entities. And they, that's their job is like when you get a fever, that's because there's a foreign entity in your body. So your body's raising the temperature so, so it can kill the, the virus that's going. And so what happens with an autoimmune is that your body gets confused and looks at the healthy and says, mm, you're the enemy. And it starts to attack instead of attacking what it's supposed to. And here's here's the sad thing about this portion of Scripture. If you noticed it when we read it in the beginning, it wasn't Sanballat. It wasn't Tobiah. Tobiah! It wasn't even Geshem. It wasn't the three main bad guys that we read about in the first four chapters. It was who? It was the Jewish people doing this to their own people. It was the people who could afford to exploit the other people were the Jews who were attacking the Jews. Now, what I don't want to do this morning is talk about oppression and talk about social justice because I think those are things that need to be mentioned and we can learn that out of the scripture. But I felt in God for us as a church specifically, I felt like God wanted us to see this and say, Lord, how does this apply to us as a local body? Because the reality is, I don't think that there's a lot of oppression happening in this room from one to another. I don't, I don't see a lot of exploitation happening in this room from one to another. I am not hearing stories about how someone has sued the other person, or how someone is lording over them and they give them. I mean, actually, we personally experience people being very generous and, and giving us a loan. And you know, there hasn't been like, all right, that's twelve percent on that loan interest. You know, it's just like, hey, here's some money. Pay me back when you can. Thank you so much. You know, I, I think that we are actually amicable. Is that the word? That, but here's what I'm feeling under God that we need to ask the Lord to help us repent from is, what's the, it's indifference. I don't think we're oppressing each other, but I do think that there's indifference in this room. I do think that we hear about so-and-so going through a hardship or suffering, and we kinda go, oh, that sucks. Sucks to be them. Glad I'm not in their shoes. Or maybe it even goes a little bit more than that We're like, well, yeah, look at the poor choices they made. Of course, they're experiencing that. Of course, that's what they're reaping. They're reaping a harvest of unwise choices. And the thing about indifference and exploitation or oppression, the, it's not really that different because they're both rooted in selfishness. They're both rooted out of a pride. They're both rooted out of a looking out for self. And we see this happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. They're rebuilding the walls. They're becoming who they're supposed to be. The temple's been rebuilt. The walls are going up. The gates are being put back up. They're starting to see the reason why they exist as a nation. And it's the same for us here. We're starting to see what God has called us to be and do. I'm hearing stories of people going across the street on Saturdays, witnessing people talking to uh, neighbors. I'm, I'm hearing these things about, I'm starting to understand who we are. But where I feel like God is challenging us on is chapter 5 and saying, Are you indifferent towards your brother's plight? When you hear of suffering, of sickness, etc., do you at least emote? Do you at least pray? Or are you kind of, well, doesn't affect me, so what's the big deal? Both rooted in selfishness. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I, I saw it as well as, you remember how like we read about how when the, they were rebuilding the walls and the first reaction of Sanballat was that he became angry. And then they continued to work. And as they continued to work, you see Sanballat becomes very angry. Well, as we're going to read here, I think we're going to read it. Are we going to read it? We are going to read it. Okay. Turn to Nehemiah uh, chapters five, but let's look at verses six through 13. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. Both Sanballat and Nehemiah are very angry, but very angry over different things. And I just thought, Lord Jesus, thank you for righteous anger. Thank you that there is an anger to be had when we hear about our brothers and our sisters who are being oppressed. Thank you that there is an anger, a righteous anger that should well up within us when we hear of injustice. It's not an anger that's rooted in selfishness. It's an anger that is rooted when we hear about somebody who's in our family who's being taken advantage of. It's a Christ like anger. After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials and I told them, You are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. At the meeting, I said to them, We are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Then I pressed further What are you doing? What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself as well as my brothers and my workers have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charge when you lent them money, grain, new wine and olive oil. They replied, verse 12, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robe and said, If you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. Nehemiah don't mince words, right? The whole assembly responded, Amen, so be it. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. There's an indifference, but then you start to see Nehemiah take leadership, and there's a generosity that comes. I mean, he talks about how him and his noble, they've been buying back people from those who were enslaved, and they've been giving grain. Um, let me see here. So the, 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 Nehemiah leads the people in a generosity, and that's what God's called us to do as a church, Friends. This thing of indifference that may be in your heart, I know it's in mine sometimes. This thing of like self-preservation, this thing of like, well, if the hole kind of looks good from the outside, let's not worry about the little details on the inside if it's rotten. When God gets a hold of you in your heart, that begins to change. And you start to become part of the solution, not the problem. I had a teacher tell me that when I was in seventh grade, a grammar, French grammar teacher. And I was such an idiot and a class clown. My goal in life was to make everybody laugh and was to make everybody, like, see how stupid the teacher was. You know, don't listen to that, kids. I I remember she would say something. Kelly, be part of the solution, not the problem. Okay. (laughs) Words that were lost on me. But lo and behold, I'm so thankful for those words because that's what God's called us to be as a people. Remember how we talked about, oh, it's not my problem. Remember, I I, I told there's a picture of a person who was painting the line on the road and there was a a tree branch that had fallen on the road. And so what they decided to do is take the machine and just paint around it like this. Not my problem, that's not my job. When the Lord gets a hold of our hearts, it becomes our job, becomes my problem. Right And generosity starts to fill up in our hearts. That's what God's called us to be. And I want to say this. Is God big enough to you so that you can sow into this community without a fear of not getting anything in return? Uh, we often, when we, when we do marriage counseling... Marianne and I will say, you know, marriage isn't about your happiness. It's about holiness. And it's about you as the husband or the wife giving wholeheartedly without a fear of reciprocation. Well, what if I serve my wife all the time and I cook the meals and I clean the house and I go to work and I do all this and I take care of the kids I change the diapers and I get home and she's just kind of like no sex I kind of wanted a reward for all this stuff what happens then and what is your job well your job as a husband is to serve and love no matter if your wife decides to serve and love you back. And it's the same for you wives. Your job, your role, responsibility is to love, respect, serve, and love your husband no matter if he gives you the equal amount of love and service back. And for us as a community, do we trust that our God is big enough to be able to sow into this community no matter if we get some kind of reciprocation in back? Back. Or do we withhold because we think somehow, if I give, I don't get it back. My God is not big enough to supply all my needs. And so I need to keep what is mine. Look at John chapter six. This is a story, where am I? I'm in the Old Testament. This is a brand new Bible, so forgive me here for a moment. John chapter six. And here's a story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, in verses 9 through 13, where am I? Next page over. This is what it says. Now, now, just to give you the context, Jesus has been ministering a lot and he's tired and he's trying to get away from the crowd. So he tells his disciples, hey guys, listen, let's, let's get in a boat because people, you know, they can't follow us on a boat. Let's get in the boat. I'm tired, you're tired. Let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side, okay? So they get in the boat and what the gospels say is that the people see Jesus He's getting in a boat! And what do they do? They start running along the shore. (laughs) I think he's heading over there. Okay, and then they, when Jesus gets to the other side, lo and behold, who's on the other side? The same people he's trying to get away from. All these crowds. And they're hungry, and they're tired, and they want to hear something good. I mean, I think sometimes this is a tough crowd, okay? (laughs) So Jesus, they're like, what do we do? The disciples are like, those people are hungry. What do we do? And Jesus is like, feed them. And they're like, well, how do we do that? Okay, so this is where we pick up. Um, And then verse eight, it's not up there, but it says, Andrew, Simon Peter brothers spoke up. And this is what he said. Verse nine, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Really good question. This is what Jesus says. Verse 10, tell everyone to sit down. Jesus said, so all, they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. There's so much in here. Imagine being that little boy. And I don't know why, he's probably got a British accent. (laughs) (laughs) But the disciple goes, what do you got? And he's like, five loaves and two fish, my Lord. What does this little boy do? I don't, I, I mean, it's speculation. I don't know. Imagine being that little boy. You're going you're gonna to take everything I have? But this is what my mom gave me today. This is all we have. I'm really hungry. And we think of five loaves of bread. Five loaves, in that time, they were like these little tiny cakes. They weren't like five giant loaves of bread that we have here in America. And two fish are probably just dried out salted fish. And Jesus says, that'll do. And then what ends up happening with these five little loaves and two fish is that not only does everyone eat, but there's more than is needed. Twelve baskets full which is a beautiful representation 12 tribes of Israel Jesus is trying to point up he's saying all of all of the nation of Israel I have enough for everyone and each one of you who represent a tribe of Israel there's going to be a basket for each of you all because one little boy gave up his meal and Jesus is calling us Southlands Chino to be a generous people you might have five loaves and two fish and you're saying this is all I have and Jesus is saying it'll do that's all I require is everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Imagine if every single person in this room wasn't afraid to give God everything. Would this church be different? Yeah. Even personally, would I be a different person? Totally. Why don't I do it? It's because I don't believe my God is big enough sometimes. God, if I give this money where you're calling me to give, what about all these toys I want? What about not even the toys I want? What about the bills I have to pay? If I give my time, what about this and this and this? What if I get nothing in return? And God's saying, do you trust me? Are you part of this church? Has God called you to be part of this church? Is Kelly the reason why you're here? No, it's because of God. God's the reason. Remember what we're fighting for. Our brothers, our sisters, our homes, our families. This is the difference between a selfish community and a gospel generous community. I think you can put that up there for me, Joe. Joe. Uh, there it is. Selfish community number one is we're lovers of self. But in a gospel generous community, we're lovers of God and others. Where is your where is your first priority of love? Is it to God and to others, or is it inward? Is it belly button gazing? Is it like myself? Are you eating your own seed, or are you sowing your seed? What's the next one up there? Not only is a selfish community a lover of self, but it thinks about my benefit at others' expense. But a gospel and generous community, others benefit at my expense. Whoa. What are you, what is this, communism? No, this is the way of the gospel. And this is all rooted out of a truth that God is big, God is strong, God is able. What's the last one there? The third one, how can this person serve me? But in a gospel generous community, it's how can I serve this person? Man, this can be applied into every relationship. If your marriage is struggling, just plug and play that one right there. Both, husband and spouse. I guarantee that your marriage will thrive if both of you are doing this. I guarantee that your relationships will thrive in this church if you are pulling this. All right. You guys doing okay? Last one here. Nehemiah, uh, go to verses 14 through 19 and we'll end with the rest of the story. It says this, for the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 12th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. I wonder if the fear of the Lord has something to do with that, you know? Verse 16, I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land, and I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 100 and Jewish, 150 Jewish officials at my table besides all the visitors from other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. That's what I'm talking about right there, okay? (laughs) Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Remember, oh my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. What you often see in scripture in every book of the Bible, is an archetype of Jesus. You see it in Genesis, you, you, I mean, like, so let's talk about the flood, right? Noah, and he, he builds the ark, and, and Jesus is, is the better ark, okay? So the, the wrath of God is coming because of the sin of man, but God in his infinite wisdom and love for, human, for humanity offers a way for salvation, and tells Noah to build an ark and he says whoever finds himself in the ark will be will be saved and so we know that the, the wrath of God comes and washes away the sin of the earth. But those who, who, who found themselves in the ark are saved. And we see that the ark is a, a type of, of Christ. Whoever finds himself in Christ will be saved from the, the wrath of God against sin. And here we see the same thing happen in the book of Nehemiah. And what I want us to see in this last portion is that Jesus is the better Nehemiah. We can, we can point to Nehemiah if we don't understand that the Bible is supposed to point to Jesus in every single aspect. And if we, we, pull, if we remove that truth, what we do is we look at Nehemiah and go, oh, what a, what a great man, full of good works. And then the message becomes, you too should be like Nehemiah. We do the whole VeggieTales thing. You know, the, the creator of VeggieTales said, yes, I admit it. I'm sorry, what I've been doing is pushing moralism on children. That's why we don't do moralism in our kids. We do gospel project because the center of it is about Jesus, how he takes away your sins. You, were, you couldn't do it on your own but God, okay? And that's what we're teaching our kids. And if we don't have that truth understanding when we look at the book of Nehemiah, every single one of us here and a preacher will get up and say, be like Nehemiah, be strong, be courageous, be a good leader. And be generous like Nehemiah. But the problem with this message is that it only lasts for a day or so. And then the reality of I don't want to be like that anymore sets in and we start to do our own thing. But when we understand that there's supposed to be a pointing to Christ, when we look at this, it helps us understand and gives us a gratitude so that from that it empowers us to do what we're called to do as a people. Not out of a moralistic doing kind of faith, but out of I've been empowered because Jesus has done this for me. So we're gonna end with a couple things here and looking how Nehemiah, or Jesus is the better Nehemiah, and verses 14, just at the beginning here, it says, for the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah from the 12th year to the 32nd year of the reign, Kenochard Xerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. So what does that have to do with Jesus. You can see here that Nehemiah 1 doesn't take what's rightfully his. By all means, he should have and could have said, because I'm the governor in the province of this area, I am owed this, I am owed certain taxes, I am owed certain, it'd be like your job giving you a per diem if you go away and you say, "Um, I'm not going to take my per diem. Well, we see this with Jesus as well. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5-8 through says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus is a better Nehemiah. Jesus didn't just deny a per diem. He laid down his life unto death, and even death on a cross which was reserved for the scum of the scum, the most humiliating way to die. Not only is Jesus a better Nehemiah in that he didn't take what was rightfully his, but he had no property and he worked like the common man. Look at verse 16. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land, and I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. Nehemiah, who the guy who should have been like, I'm the dude, you know, I'm the dude, and you guys come and ask me and tell me all these things, but I tell you what's up. And I just sit here, you ever see like government work on the side of the road going on? There's like five supervisors telling one guy with a shovel what to do, you know? That's what Nehemiah should have been doing. But he worked the wall. Even the guys who were entrusted to be his servants told them to work. And he didn't even take any property when it could have rightfully his. This is what Jesus did in Matthew 8. 19 through 20, it says this about him. A scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, the king of kings, the creator of the universe, humbled himself where he didn't even have a house to live in. And he also suffered just like One of us in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is truly the better Nehemiah. Last one, look at verses 17 through 18. You see that Nehemiah, he provided for and was generous even to foreigners. Look at this in verse 17 through 18. Where am I here? Man, this writing's getting smaller and smaller as I get older. (laughs) Gotta hold it, why is that? If it gets smaller, why do you have to hold it farther away? Why, somebody tell me. Okay. 17 through 18 says, I ask nothing even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table besides all the visitors from other lands the provisions I pay for each day include one ox, six sheep, you know, et cetera, a bunch of stuff that we would look at this and go, that's surely like once a year, right? No, every day. Uh, that's a lot. And it wasn't just the Jewish people. It was the foreigners. And Jesus is the better Nehemiah. I mean, who, who are God's chosen people that we see in the book of, uh, in the Bible? It's the Jews. But when Jesus comes Who does he welcome in? Every nation. Remember when he turned over the tables in Matthew? Remember when he was ticked off because he tells him, you turn this into a den of thieves." it's supposed to be a house of prayer for what? All nations. Psalm 23, 5 and 6 says this about our King Jesus, that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You don't you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It doesn't just say, and my cup has just enough in there. Surely this is a a a faith-filled hope. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why can you and I recite Psalm 23, 5, and 6 with confidence? It's because Jesus is a better Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah was a good man, a good moral man, a generous man, provides plenty for the people. But Jesus was so much better in that he provided eternal life. He provided a way to be reconciled to the Father. And it doesn't just end there. When we are in Christ, when we're in the ark, we experience goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Will you stand with me this morning?